I trust you'll be blessed by the word today. If you would open to the book of Ephesians, please. Obviously, we started this and it will be here for a while. Book of Ephesians, chapter 1. I'd like to read 3 through 6. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus under the inspiration of the Spirit in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. As we've said before, chapter 1 verse 3 all the way to verse 14 is one long sentence in the original language and it's actually 202 words in the Greek text. One sentence, a lengthy sentence, obviously, describing the believer's incredible riches in Christ. We said here from previous studies to remind us that here are brilliant spiritual treasures that are in a spiritual treasure chest. The treasure chest is 3 through 14 in particular, and the different treasures that we will pick up and look at. They are brilliant spiritual gems. And what we want to emphasize, which Paul emphasizes here, is they belong to each and every saint to to the very same degree. No one Christian has more of one gem than another Christian. Every person considered a saint by God, these gems are theirs. This is true of every single saint in the fullest measure. Okay, The prepositional phrase that's repeated in this long sentence, such as in Him or in Christ or through Christ, that's used 13 times in this, this one long sentence. And then the, the us or our or we is mentioned 13 times as well. And when you put this together, and if you were to look back at verse 3 again, you notice there that why God should be praised is because He has blessed us equally with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies and then the phrase, in Christ. Okay, And so from verse 4 on, He's going to unpack what that means in particular. But it's, it's in Christ and it's for us equally as a whole. So then... The Apostle Paul begins this way. So we're, we're looking at what he's doing, but why is he doing it? Why does he open it this way? He begins this way to establish the grounds for, for what he's eventually going to be speaking about, what his concern is in chapter 4, verse 3, which says it like this, "...being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace." Unity in the, in the body of Christ is the concern of Paul's. He speaks of unity in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4. The basis of that unity is what we're looking at here in these spiritual treasures because this is true of every single person who is in Christ to the same level, to the same degree. Okay, And so 
this this unity that he speaks of is grounded in this truth of verses 3 through 14. Also, you notice, why is Paul saying this? Not only is he concerned about a unity eventually, but there's three phrases that he repeats in verse 6, in verse 12, and verse 14. Look at verse 6, for instance. What is the ultimate goal of what he's doing is this, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, you see that repeated at the end, last part of verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Okay? So what is Paul's concern here in laying out the treasures that he does is that we all worship. He wants to instill, he wants to um, invigorate the believer's heart to praise. And we all should be praising for this same purpose. We, because we all possess these spiritual gems equally, no matter what level of sanctification we are at, how long we've been walking with the Lord, I have these gems as much as you and vice versa. And then what it should be pray, squeezing out of us is this praise, right? We, you can't contain this, this praise, this adulation, this, this exaltation to God for how gloriously gracious He has been to me. And then that's the basis of the unity. He's exhorting them practically. So there is, there is a spiritual unity that we all possess. We see it fragmented because of sin and ignorance. But true believers, not in fellowship, though they possess equally these spiritual realities, are not practically in unity. And that's what Paul wants to dispel. That's a disgrace to Paul. Is there how many lords are there? How many faiths are there? You see? So to have true believers not in unity is one of the most grossest sins we can because we give a wrong picture to the world of Jesus Christ. Okay? So this is where Paul starts here because he's talking. This, is, this letter is going to be on a circle, a route. And every believer in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey is going to read this and hear this. And so he wants to put everybody on the same plane. Okay? So this is what he's concerned about here. And if, if you were to, so in, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, just all introduction, verse 3, where he says, preserve the unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. The key word there is preserve. It's to guard. It's to keep. Okay. So it's to protect that which I already possess. And what is it we already possess is this spiritual unity in Christ Jesus. Okay. All right. So we already possess that. The moment you were saved, you were in spiritual unity with a person across the world who, who himself was saved and everybody else in between who's truly converted, truly in union with Jesus Christ. You have a spiritual unity with them that he, the exhortation then is this practical unity. Don't let it fracture. And it says work hard to preserve that. See? Okay. That's what chapter 4 speaks about. When you go back to our section here, chapter 1, verses 3 and following in Ephesians, he lays this all out for us to see the basis of our spiritual unity. Okay, As we said, this is true of every single person who is a saint, every single person in Christ. These truths are ours to the fullest measure. We said in verse 4 that the first spiritual gem, the first 
pearl, if you will, right? In Paul's list is election, the doctrine of election. Verse 4, he chose us in him. The us, obviously, every single person in Christ equally has been chosen by God. That's what he says. The first gem, the brilliant gem, is the doctrine of election. Verse 3, who is the he that made the choice? But God the Father, being specific in particular. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who made the choice in verse 4. Okay? We won't re-preach what we've already preached there, though it is tempting. <laughs> but I remind you, right, that the Father made the choice before time began. It was a, we'll call it a simple choice of grace, unmerited favor, What does that mean? It had no regard whatsoever of the person chosen's potential. It simply was God's good choice, His will. He exercised His will and said, I choose Him. Okay? Before you existed, He made that choice. That's what verse 4 says, yeah? Before time. Before you did anything good or bad. Before you even existed. He made this choice. Why, why is this stated? It's to emphasize the free grace of God in that. There's no works in it whatsoever. As soon as you add works, it's no longer grace. They're mutually exclusive. It's entirely of God's good pleasure. Right? And Paul starts there, which is fascinating. Not only is election the first of the pearls that are going to be strung on this treasured string, if you will, But it's also the one that opens the doors to all the rest. Because if you are chosen by Him, you are chosen then to be the recipient of all the goodness He wants to shower on you. See? So, when you look there at verse 4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that first gem is election. That leads to the second one, which is... And we said earlier, right, that election is one of the most hated doctrines by the professing church well, the next one's hated even worse. <laughs> Predestination in verse 5 is despised by the professing church. And I hope to dispel that. If you have any reluctance to that, I hope to be used of God to show you that that is just not a good place to be. Because this is, this is the goodness of God to you. right? Because remember verse 3? Has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, and so everything that follows is under the banner of spiritual blessing. And we looked at the word blessing there, and it means good. So, election is for my good, not my harm. Predestination is for my good, not my harm. Okay? So, just stating that. So, in verse 5, notice please, the second gem treasure here is, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. This is so packed. And I hope you appreciate how hard I'm going to work to get through this today. (laughs) Right? This is amazing. Along with sovereign election, predestination is most abused. It's ill-taught. It's despised by so many professing believers. 
uh, entire Protestant denominations will reject this, speak against this, say that you're a heretic because you hold to predestination. They say this makes God an angry, capricious, arbitrarily choosing God who's up there being just, he can squash when he wants to and he can bless when he wants to and it makes God out to be a monster. These are phrases they use, okay? They make God out to be a monster. This, they say, denies or abuses human free will. I hope it does. Um, it makes... I've read... I just read yesterday, okay? It's amazing. This is anti-American. <laughs> like it, like that matters, right? Right? Predestination's anti-American. Well, why is it anti-American? Because it's anti-democracy. Well, you better believe it is. Yes, praise God. It's pro-God and anti-democracy, right? It, and it, they say it's an invention of a guy named Calvin, and they just demonize Calvin and make him the most worst human ever walk on the planet, right? Um, you've heard all these things, right? They say that man, he's not under this predestination. Man is not free to choose for himself. Therefore, God cannot hold man responsible, and by so doing, if God is predestinating the way we say, then God is responsible for sin. Right? Of course, that's not true. They would say also that man, this predestination doctrine kills evangelism. If you believe that God predestined some to glory and some not, you're not going to go out and share Christ. Well, that's a false statement because every missionary movement that has bore fruit for Christ in the history of the church has been those who held to sovereign election and predestination. So that's a false statement. Go read Spurgeon. Right? He's the most radical predestinarian person I've ever read, man. And he's Baptist. Right? But he was one of the most evangelistic persons on the planet. And he held to sovereign election and predestination. Okay? So, I just throw that out there to show you that there's a lot of opposition. If you haven't, uh, if you haven't come across it, you will as soon as you open your mouth about it. <laughs> so be prepared. And understand that those who are opposing it most likely are ill-taught and they need you to just graciously sit down and say, well, now, wait a minute, consider these passages. Okay? Don't get riled. Right? Don't get sinfully agitated against them. Right? But remember that perhaps you were once like that before God's grace opened your eyes to predestination. Right? Okay. Now, what I want to do here then is to... Three things in particular is I want to define predestination by looking at the word and give a definition for it so we have it in our brain. Secondly, I want to see how the New Testament uses this same word. It's all over the place. And I say that because then you, you have to deal with it, right? You can't, you can't dislike predestination and say it's the invention of John Calvin. No, it's the invention of the Holy Spirit, <laughs> right? Because it's used all over the New Testament. And I want to see, thirdly, I want to see other closely related terms and how they're used in the New Testament. And you will see this doctrine is absolutely everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere, beloved. And I hope at the end of this that it would lead to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's what I want. I want us to be so moved by when we're done that we cannot help ourselves but to praise the name of Jesus, to praise the name of God, who would be so gracious as to choose me and to predestine me before I even existed. That's good stuff. Now, where are we? We'll look at the verse 5. Now, if you can, pluck up that word, pick it up, and look at it. Predestined, right? Look at it from every angle. You know, make sure you get a good undercarriage look at it and look at it from the top side. Because it's a very important word. In the Greek, it's two words together. Pro, P-R-O, 
is attached to horizo, where we get the word horizon from. Okay, so like looking out over there at the horizon, that's where we get this the verb here that has attached to it the word pro, which means before. So beforehand, what does horizon have to do with this? Well, listen to some of this. This word horizo means that which marks a boundary or sets a limit. Okay? Like the horizon makes a boundary between the sky and the earth. See? Um, it's often translated, horizo is, appoint, determine, designate. When you put the two together, pro Horizo, you get this idea of being marked out beforehand or setting a limit beforehand or to pre-appoint, predetermine, which is obviously to determine something beforehand. Okay, very clear. Just want to make sure we all get this in our brain. It's to set a boundary beforehand. It's to determine, to determine the limits of a person or something beforehand. Okay. To determine the end before it happens, thus guaranteeing what's been predetermined. Okay? So this is a simple definition, okay? To mark out beforehand, to set limits beforehand. Okay? Now I want you to look now at the New Testament's usages of this verb, this word. And so if you don't mind, we're going to shake some dust out of my New Testament here and go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And this is the word, what we're looking at here, we're chasing around, is the word pro-horizomai. Okay? So that preposition connected to that verb there. There's, so this word is used in at least three or four different places in the New Testament. Look at verse 28 of Acts 4. Um, and since we're amongst friends, would somebody dare to read? Can we do that at church service? Somebody read that out loud. Verse 28. Oh, there you go. Now, notice in the context here is, is Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles doing whatever they decided to do with Jesus Christ. Okay, But look at what it says again in verse 28. To do whatever your hand, he's talking to God the Father, whatever your hand, whatever your power and your purpose, notice, predestined to occur. Predestination. Lord, what, it has, what is it that you have predestined? Why would they say that? Because that's what's going to happen. <laughs> that's what's going to happen. All right. Well, if you still don't like that one, go to 1 Corinthians 7. <laughs> I got some more in my bandoleros. I got, you know, you ever seen Pancho Villa with the bandoleros and they got the bullet? Right? I got some more bullets in my bandolero. <laughs> <laughs> And you should all say in unison, Andale. Um, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7. Look at this here. He speak, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, I knew NES says, which God, what? Predestined when? For what purpose? For glory. 1 Corinthians 2, 7. So whatever it's saying in its context there, it's this, right? That this which Paul speaks is revealing a wisdom that was once hidden. And this, this, this which is being revealed is that which God predestined before time. Okay? All right. 
Now go to one of our favorite passages, Romans chapter 8. Because this word is used there as well. And we all know where this is, right? 8, 29, and 30 is our text here. Romans 8, verse 29. And if you notice, it starts with 4. So it's explaining something that came off of verse 28. So I want to go to verse 28 because that's the, that's, the, that's the magnet you have on your refrigerator out of context. So what is it talking about? <laughs> verse 28, right? <laughs> and we know... We're convinced, verse 28, that my New American Standard says that God causes all things to work together synergistically for good. That's incredible. Now look at that. Not just for anybody, but to those who love God and those called according to His purpose. Okay? So the good that God's doing, working out in your life, is for your good because you love Him and I've been called to this purpose He's decided. What is that purpose that He's called you to is going to be further explained in the next verse because that's why it starts with four in verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also what? Now notice, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to what goal? Speak louder. You got it. To be conformed to the image of his son. Is that not glorious? God's predestination of those whom he's chosen for himself is that they would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. He predestined that. Right? He predestined that. That means it's not, not going to happen. It's guaranteed to happen. He's predestined that purpose. Notice what else it says. Let's finish this. Verse 29, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that purpose, He would be Christ, the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, And those whom He predestined, so that word's used twice here, He called. You see the, the, the sequence here? Predestination in verse 30 precedes call. The call is through the gospel. When you hear the gospel, the, the internal call of the Spirit of God is through the gospel proclamation. But it's those who were predestined beforehand who are going to hear the call. They're the called. Okay? Look at the sequence here. Verse 30 goes on from there. Those whom he called, he also justified. How are you justified? By grace through faith. So do you see it's sequence, it's 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 just predestinations is back in the is back in the heavenlies before time. And those he predestined to conformity to Christ are the ones who he called. Lazarus, come forth. Well, he didn't do that to everybody in the tombs, he did it to that guy. Same thing in salvation. He doesn't call everybody in that way, he just calls those he predestined to be conformed to Christ. He says, Tino, come here. Arise, you dead sinner, and I'll give you life. He makes you alive, and you rise up, and you come, you see. He predestined you to do that, to be conformed to the image of Christ. He called you, and He justified you through faith. Okay, all right. Look at what else it says. Verse 30. And these whom He justified, He also, what's your text say? What tense? Pass. As though it's already happened. Now, I don't know. I love y'all. 
but you ain't glorified yet. <laughs> Except in the mind of God. You know why? Because he predestined it to happen. It's so certain it cannot come undone. So God can speak of something future in a past tense because it's so certain to happen. If you think you can undo the predestinating work of God, you're more powerful than God. And we all know that's not true. <laughs> all right? If you're married, I want to talk to your spouse. Because <laughs> they know that too. Right? I try to fool my wife, but she just ain't buying right? So this predestinating work of God is glorious, beloved. It's for our good. Okay? It's for my good. Now, there's other terms used. Horizo. This, those terms we looked at there had the, had the preposition connected to it, pro-horizo. There's other places where just the verb is used that's worth looking at because it speaks about being marked out and appointed as well. So, go to Acts. Oh, do we want to do it that way or go that way? Um, yeah, Acts 2. Please, Acts 2. Look at verse 22 and 23, the context. This is glorious. I really like this stuff. Um, verse 22 of Acts 2. Our term is going to be found in verse 23, but you'll see it in the context here. Men of Israel. Peter's first sermon. Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God. How did he... Show him off as the Messiah with miracles and wonders and signs. Verse 22, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. You saw it happen. You saw Jesus make food, walk on water, raise the dead. You saw that. Verse 23, this man who we just spoke about doing those miracles delivered over. That means going, that, that language often has to do with prisoner exchange outside of Bible. It has to do with prisoner exchange. To take my hand and deliver it over and put it into the hand of the, of the gatekeeper, of the prison guard, right? That term is used here. Now get this, look at what he says. He says, this man who God performed the miracles through is the one who was handed over, delivered over. How was it delivered over? How did it come about? Look at the verse 23. By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Stopping right there. God's part in the crucifixion of Christ is what's mentioned in that first part of that verse. And it has to do with his predetermined plan. So that the cross of Christ is not plan B, it's plan A. God sent his son to die. Jesus came in full acceptance of that, did he not? He came in subjection to the Father's plan. The plan that was predetermined, predestined beforehand. The Son comes in full submission to the Father's plan, which is to be delivered over to sinners to be nailed on a cross, though he's sinless. That's amazing. But that's God's part. 
Right there. That's God's part. And people will say, well, this doctrine that you are promoting of predestination, it removes man's culpability. Man's just a robot. Really, look at the next part of verse 23. Now you have man's part. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. How about that? Do you see both parts there? You see the railroad tracks that Mr. Spurgeon always talked about that, ne- that always parallel and never cross between this absolute sovereignty of God and responsibility of man. You see that right there. God is the one who planned it and delivered over His Son according to the plan. Ah, but you're culpable, Jews, because you handed Him over to the Gentiles. God didn't force you to do that. You did that according to your own free, sinful, wicked will. But it was in perfect harmony with the sovereign plan of God. Right? That's how big God is. He's massive. By the way, this is the only God that exists. So deal with it. Right? You can't just flush it away and live as though this isn't true. This is the only God that exists. You have no other choice, beloved, but to do business with this God. And this is for your good. This fuels worship. You cannot worship God remotely, closely, as He desires and demands and deserves until you understand these doctrines right here. That's good stuff. Because this is why it was given. This is why He's revealing it. And beloved, this is true of every single person who's in Christ. You were chosen by the Father and predetermined by the Father. Okay. Um, yeah. Go to uh, Acts 17, please. Acts 17. And look at verse... 26, how about 25 and 26? This is glorious context. This is Mars Hill. This is Brother, Brother Max. Look at, not to read, just to quickly show for the purpose today. Look at 25 and 26. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Talking about God. Since he himself gives, he's the giver, not the receiver, to all people, life, breath, and all things. Verse 26, And he, this God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of, on all the face of the earth, notice, having determined their appointed or pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. I mean, there's three terms there that are all inter- showing that not even people living in Africa chose to be there. God's the one that determined that. And the boundaries, He determined that. Right? Um, that's how massive God is. Right? He, he, he determines and predetermines and appoints these things. And it's all for His glory and our good. See? Now, go to Luke uh, 22, please. Luke 22, and look at verse, very familiar passage here. Our Lord speaks in verse 21 and 22 for the sake of context here. Luke 22, 21 and 22, But behold, the hand of the one betraying me, that's Judas Iscariot, is with, is with mine on the table. 
Verse 22, For indeed the Son of Man is going by chance. Oh, no, that's not what it says. <laughs> it has been determined. Do you see that? Now, in the context, he's talking about Judas Iscariot betraying the Lord Jesus Christ. And the result of that betrayal is the arrest. This text is is saying again and pushing forward in our minds so that we do not miss it, that that which is about to happen is that which God has predetermined to happen. But even Judas cannot say, I can't be culpable because you're sovereign. Look at what it says in the next half of verse 22. But woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. I don't understand all that, beloved, to be honest with you. God is absolutely sovereign and we have culpability. But you know what? That's what it says. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. That's what it says. So God's massive sovereignty is not thwarted by man's choices. His will will be done. God predetermines these things. Okay. Um... Let's see here. Now, with all of that, go to Ephesians chapter 1. And he says there, we take all that information in verse 5. He says he predestined us to adoption. This jewel of predestination leads to adoption. Okay? So, the goal here, or the, the next step in verse 5, the predestinating work of God is to lead to adoption. And before we examine all of that, notice that at the end of verse 4, what is it in God that caused him to predestinate is that he loved. In love he predestined. What's well, the same love that says God so loved the world he gave his son? It's the same love. Same God. So out of a heart of love... Pre-time, God, from love, set apart, predetermined this, us, to adoption as sons. Now, he uses a phrase here, adoption, that his audience, this Roman idea of adoption, they would understand this. And this adoption here has to do with adults' sonship. It has to do with me being having no heirs of my own and then taking a young man, an adult male, and adopting him as my own. And in adopting him as my own, I am giving him all the privileges and promises of heirship as though he were my blood son from all the way up. And so what this is saying, the Romans did this all over the place. And so this person becomes an heir who just the other day, for the sake of argument who just before that was just a a nothing. And it's the choice of the father to say, I don't have an heir. I want you to be my heir. And you come and, and I legally give you that standing so that legally you can be declared and treated and receive all the blessings of mine. Isn't that incredible? God the Father predestined y'all who are in Christ to that end. Right? Now, what does it mean here when you look at verse 5? Um, to adoption as sons. So it's, he's talking about this, this adult sonship. 
God predestined those whom He chose to adoption as sons. And notice it's not absent from Jesus Christ in verse 5, but it's through Jesus Christ. Okay? So in this way then, how is it through Jesus Christ? He is the Son of God. He is the heir of God by right, by nature. We are adopted by the Father through Jesus Christ. In other words, we come to Him and it's through His experience, it's through His sacrificial death, redeeming us, paying for our sin, His resurrection. It's So then we are united to this One who is by nature the Son of God. So that this adoption as sons through Christ then is this, that God's predestined us to be heirs, legal heirs of all that is His, just as everything belongs to Jesus Christ. In love He did that. That should lead us to praise God for the glory of His grace because I'm a nobody. (laughs) I'm a nobody. I'm a peony. (laughs) I'm a field hand at best. And God's made me a son. How about that? Go to, uh, just because I want to, go to Romans uh, 8. This idea is seen... Romans 8, we could pick it up perhaps in verse uh, 15, 14. How about 14 at least down through 17? See how it works here. Look at what it, we go on here. This, is, this chapter is, is about assurance of salvation. It's, uh, the Holy Spirit is prominent in this text here. This, this whole chapter, 18 times the Holy Spirit's mentioned here. Um, so he is a major part of assurance, but he's a major part of this assurance which comes from sonship. In verse 14, please, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, notice it, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Notice, fear again. That's how I was before I came to Christ. But you have received a spirit of adoption. A disposition of adoption. Notice what it says in 15. As sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So this is speaking, this adoption is more of the idea of now I've been brought into the family and I, re- and I realize the subjective sense and feeling of being in the family of God. And through that subjective feeling and the work of the Holy Spirit, subjectively, I recognize that I'm a child of God. Therefore, I cry out, Abba, Father. This is the other side of what Ephesians is talking about. You've been predestined to be a legal heir of Christ, whether you feel like it or not. Romans 8 is the work of the Spirit to cause you to feel like it. So they both work together. They're both true. You have been set aside, predetermined to be that heir. And if you look here at verse 16 of Romans 8 and 17, notice what it says. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Testifies as present tense. The Holy Spirit is constantly bearing witness with my inner person that I am indeed a child of God. He convinces me. You see, that's His work. That's a work of grace. That's a work of love. 
He wants me to have that assurance, beloved. And he says there in verse 16, he's testifying through the word, through other saints, through his own personal ministry to us. Okay, well, keep going. And if children, look at the logic here. If we are children of God, and I'm in the family of God, that makes me, verse 17, an heir. An heir? And he says, also. (laughs) Well, I'm not smart as tack, sharp as tack in the box, but also means in addition to. (laughs) There's There's something else to add to this. Ah, an heir also. And what is he saying? Well, an heir of God and a fellow or joint heir with Christ. Oh, dude. Do you understand? Obviously you do. But I'm going to speak as though you don't. To be an heir means I am the recipient of all that belongs to my father. And he bequeaths thee. That's a cool word I came across when I studied this a while ago. Right? He, he bequeaths thee. That he, he promises that legally to you. you. Because you're an heir. You're his son. And he has stated that this is yours. Now get this. You're an heir of God. And a joint heir with Christ. Everything that belongs to God. Can I be so bold? Belongs to Tony. I'm a joint heir with Christ. If you're in a joint venture, what's that mean? You just hang out at home and the other guy does all the work? (laughs) If you're a joint heir, don't you get the same stuff the guy you're joined to is? Mm -hmm. I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Everything that belongs to God the Father, He has given to His Son by right. Jesus Christ has the right because He is the Son of God. Therefore, we've been adopted into that. And by grace, I am a recipient of all that belongs to Jesus. And I've been predestined to that. Why do you hate predestination? You've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. He's predestined you to that. How glorious. To the praise of the glory of His grace. Back to Ephesians, because I have to be done before 5. They'll kick us out. Just kidding. Um, I'm going as fast as I can. I'm sorry. But look at what it says in verse 5. He predestined us. Now notice this, is, this us is every single saint, every, everyone in Christ. He predestined, pre-marked us out to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And then this next phrase, this is such a, a strong tincture of iodine, you know, a strong tincture of theology here. It's just every phrase matters. It's so tightly wound up here. I, I'm having a hard time getting through this. It says, to himself. Now the little prepositional phrase speaks of the end. So it speaks of why the goal of this adoption as sons through Christ to himself or for himself has this idea it was for his purpose, for his, for the, for his pleasure. It was for him. It was for God. He did this for himself. Adopting you made him happy. Because look at the next phrase. That's exactly what he says. Do you see it there? The last phrase in verse 5? 
according to the kind intention of his will. This is laying out the why he did predestination. According to speaks of the source of or the or where it's from. Kata, right? It's it's where where it's from. Where did this predestination stuff come from? It came from the kind intention of his will. That's where it came from. Okay? God is not a monster. He's a loving father. It says, according to or in harmony with, my New American Standards says kind intention. It probably could be best maybe translated good pleasure from the good pleasure of his will. Now think of this. His will. My goodness. Whole books are written on this. I'm going to try to condense this in two and a half hours. Um, (laughs) His will. That which he thinks. That which he desires. Speaking about God, it's that which he decides is right and wrong. Okay? His will. It's what he determines what's good and what's evil. Okay? It, it, what is to happen. It's, it, it's what he has thought through should, will happen. Okay? Now get this. It's much like a blueprint for a, for a builder. It's, you lay out the plans, the architectural plans which tells the contractor what material to use, what's, what kind of nails and wood, how much thickness of cement, everything, right? All the stuff is according to this plan. That's the will of God, okay? He has the architectural plan of what life is going to be. Look at what it says. If you look at verse, according to the kind intention of His will... It's his will that's determining these things. But it's the good pleasure of his will. Okay? Now get this. His will precedes, goes before, and determines everything that comes to be. It's according to his will. That tells us his will is the origin of predestination. So it was his pleasure to, pre, to predestine you to adoption. It was his pleasure. It, it pleased the Father. It was a happy decision of his to predestine you to be his legal heir. And you, may I say it continues to bring him pleasure? He's not sorry he did that. <laughs> he delights over his people. You didn't surprise him with your wickedness and your sin. Okay? God is not dumb and blind. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. And he chose you for himself in spite of you. For his glory. And predestined you to be a son. He didn't say, dang, that Tina, when I chose him, I thought he'd be a little better. But man, I'm, I, I stepped in it today, man. I'm sorry I'm not to cut you loose, partner. <laughs> Here's your walking papers, right? I'm going to have to go find another another heir to fill your seat. No. Many Christians think that way. No. It's in love he predestined you to adoption as sons. He wanted you to be his child. And he wanted to bequeath on you everything that's his. He wanted, he wanted it brought him pleasure to lavish on you everything that's his. 
Can you imagine that? I mean, truly soak on that for the next 20 years and then choose something else. (laughs) Right? The will of his will. I'm just going to say it and then we'll spend another study some more down the road on it. His will, I think we can divide it up into at least two. His known will, revealed will, and his secret will. Okay, What do we mean by that? His revealed will is scripture. This is, we know what this, this is his will in scripture. Okay, So we call it the revealed will. The known will of God. Okay, but then there's what we would call the secret will, the 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 mystery, mystery will, the will of providence. That that which you cannot go to scripture and say, I know who he wants to be president. I know where you're going to live next year. The the secret will of God. This is like James four when he says we're going to go to such and such a town and make a profit. You remember his rebuke there? You're just a whisper. You don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring. Maybe you should say if God wills. See, that's secret will. His providential will. The will that is cannot be known. So what the will is here, according to the kind intention of his will here, is being revealed that which was once secret. So we'll, we'll classify it this way, okay? His will here in verse 5 is that which was before time in secret. The good intention of his will, the good pleasure of his will is that which decided you to be his, marked out to be his son forever and a recipient of all that is his. Okay, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of his law. Okay? Um, So then, this will of God, the secret will of God, get this, the known will of God can be opposed. That's what disobedience is. That's what sin is. The secret will of God cannot be thwarted. You cannot change the secret will of God. He doesn't give you that option. Predestination is under the secret will of God. Okay, What he's predetermined is going to happen. Right? Oh, man. Isaiah 46. Please. At least three more places, and then, and then maybe I'll be done. But oh, you got nothing else to do this week. <laughs> Isaiah forty-six. Uh, Isaiah forty-six. I love this. This is some of my favorite stuff. Um, start in verse eight, please. Isaiah 46, verse 8 through at least 11 here. Look at the flow here and the point I want to gather from this. He says in verse 8, Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Verse 9, Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's no one like me. Okay, So he's identifying as the one and only God and he's, he's an act all by himself. Verse 10, he goes to show this 
uniqueness of this God in verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose, notice, will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Okay? Nothing can stop the purpose of God. This is the secret will of God. Nothing is going to thwart that which he pleases to do. Okay? Nothing. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't. Um, Pharaoh couldn't. Trump couldn't. Putin can't. Zelensky can't. And Biden certainly can't. (laughs) I said it with a smile. Daniel 4. Okay, Daniel 4. Daniel 4. Look at verse... This is good stuff here. Look at verse... uh, Context. 34 and 35 at least. Daniel's going to speak about this, Nebuchadnezzar. 434. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes. Remember, this is after seven years of being eating grass. After that period, verse 34... I, Nebuchadnezzar, personal testimony, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High. He's converted, man. He's in glory. And praised and honored Him who lives forever. Look what he says. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but He does what? According to His will in the host of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And then what does it say after that? Keep going. How about that? No one can thwart, no one can ward off his hand and say, what have you done? Nobody. This is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. Nebuchadnezzar, he tried. (laughs) And God sent him away to eat grass like a cow. Right? You cannot thwart the purpose and plan of God that he's predetermined and predestined okay back to my text in Ephesians the second jewel of predestination is glorious 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 because it's to adoption as sons so that we are joint heirs through Jesus Christ joint heirs with Jesus Christ for God himself it pleased him it was according to that good intention good pleasure of his will that decided this and verse 6 then tells us that the goal of predestination the goal of election is verse 6 why did God do this because he wants you and I'll say I'll add angels to that to praise him for the glory of his grace it's to worship him Isn't that what it does? Mm -hmm. It excites my soul to extol Him for, for who He is and what He's done. And in particular, He has blessed me in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing of which election is the first and it's followed by predestination to sonship. I'm a son of God by His doing. I'm an object of his lavish affection because he wanted to. And he wants to lavish on me all that belongs to him. And all that belongs to him is everything. 
<laughs> so rejoice. I cannot imagine a Christian understanding this and having a heart. I would be. I have a hard time containing ourselves. Oh, woe is me. I'm a child of God, a joint heir with Christ. Everything that's God's is mine. Get out of here. <laughs> I know we're in a fallen world. Battle for joy. Battle for joy. How do you do so? You fill your minds with these kinds of truths. And you ask God to give you the ability to respond to this thing. It takes grace either way. To the praise of the glorious grace, and he finished, he can't, it's like he can't contain himself. He continues to go. So you think I'm long-winded. This is one long sentence. We're only in verse six, right? Which he freely, notice the grace that he's talking about, which he freely, God the Father freely bestowed or freely graced, is what it probably should say, on us in the beloved. Amazing. Notice that this this started at the end of verse 4 in love and it ends in verse 6 in the beloved. So from the heart of love, the Father predestined and he, He lavished His grace upon us in the one whom He loves particularly, especially, and that's His Son. Remember Matthew 13 at the baptism, the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. This is the son of my love. This is the son I particularly and especially love. And you and I are in him, and therefore we are objects of that affection. Get over it. He loves you. Before time. Now. And forever. That's his doing. Amen? That's why we have spiritual unity. You were chosen and predestined. You're a joint heir with Christ as much as I am. And everything that's God's is yours and mine. To the praise of the glory of His grace. We better pray before you starve out here. (laughs) Lord, thank you for your word. I trust and I plead and I beg that you would take this and use it for your glory in our hearts. Give us a a better understanding of this truth so that we would be people of praise and filled with joy. That we are joint heirs with Christ and we shall be in his presence like him forever. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.